Dear fellow redeemed, there are some things in life and some occasions in life where we have to wait perhaps longer than we had wanted. The obvious illustration would be maybe something like a, a football game and a team waiting for a long time to, to win. <laughs> Sorry for those cheering for Ohio State yesterday. That's all I'm going to say about football today. <laughs> and you talk about waiting. You might think of things from your own life that you have had to wait for. Maybe it's something as simple as waiting for a part to come in so that you could fix the car or fix the computer or just get back to everyday life. Maybe it's something a little bit more complex. When you think about waiting the 40 weeks, 42 weeks until a child is born, maybe it's something, something that has resided close to your heart, a desire that it seems like you've waited for a long time, and looking at the clock or the calendar, you might have 10 or 20 or 30 years more. Maybe it's something that, looking in the rearview mirror of life, it's like waiting in reverse, almost a longing for what had been, or to see that person one more time. But if you've ever experienced waiting of, of that sort, not just waiting for a game and waiting for two-day shipping, which turns into four-day shipping, to show up on your porch. If you've ever experienced the sort of waiting and longing and sometimes even wondering if it's ever going to happen, then you know a little bit of the character of Advent. You know a little bit what it is like, what the tone of the season is, in these four Sundays leading up to the Sunday before Christmas, because it's all characterized by waiting. And if, you, if we took just a step back, we would recognize that that really has been the characteristic and the, the driving um, idea or feeling for the entirety of God's history of interacting with his people. That God's people throughout history have been a people who have had to wait. And not just waiting for something simple, something that could be fixed in a day, not even something that would be waiting necessarily for something they would see in their own lifetimes. You think of um, God's first promise to Adam and Eve, that he would send a serpent crusher. And after a while they realized that the first boy they had was not that serpent crusher. You think of Noah having such a long time, 120 years, to build the ark. A fifth of his lifetime. All that waiting and all that work, day in and day out, to prepare for what God said would happen. You think of Abraham and Sarah who have been, you know, drawn social security for a while, if such a thing existed, and God said that you're going to have a son. 
And Abraham was 65 years old, and it would be like 25 more years before that son would be born. Waiting. You think of God's people there in Egypt, in slavery, for the last portion of it, and they were there for 400 years, waiting for God to finally fulfill the promise he made to Abraham 600 years previously that he would take them to a land of of milk and honey, a land where Abraham had pitched his tent and fed his flocks, and that land would be theirs. But it was the sort of waiting that was passed on from generation to generation, holding on to the simple and perhaps spare, as in not a whole lot of detail, word of God. But just that simple promise of God, to your descendants I will give this land. And how many generations were born and died there in Egypt, waiting? You think of the times when when God's people had rejected his promise. God had said, I will give you this promised land and I I will help you to take it. And I will drive out the nations before you. That was his word. That was his promise. And the people came back and said, you know what? We don't think you can do it, God. Um, They've got big cities and and tall people and strong armies. And they doubted that word of God. And so God took them out to the desert for a 40-year timeout, waiting for that generation of unbelief to die out until the next generation would enter that land. And you could keep going throughout the history of God's interaction with his people. It would be another, what, 400 years before Israel would have a king. Nearly 100 years after that, well, 60 years, I suppose, when you would have David and Solomon. And finally, finally there would be a temple. But that's still 950 years before Jesus showed up and just keep going throughout Old Testament history. And one of the the deepest, darkest points is when God's people are sent away in exile and Jerusalem is destroyed. And God, all God does is repeat his promise and repeat his word so that the people pay attention to that despite all the outward appearances. That was our first reading from, from Jeremiah where God had made specific promises for three different, three different things. Verse 14, he had said, I will fulfill the promises that I spoke to the house of Israel. And then verse 15, I will cause a righteous branch to come out, out of David's line. And then verse 16, that the city of Jerusalem, that place, and that spiritual people will be called the Lord our righteousness. All the waiting and all that they have to wait with is the simple word of God. That word of God which is trustworthy and they don't need an entire book from him. But so often, even that word of God offends our human reason because we want more. And we don't like waiting. Isn't that more the case? That if you think of your own life, and you think of 
the things that you have had to wait for, maybe biding your time until retirement, maybe waiting for you know, some restoration of health, waiting to get over the cold or the flu, waiting for that surgery, waiting for a happy reunion to see the family again, waiting for that time when Jesus will return and put an end to all the pain and suffering of this world. And the danger, the danger isn't that God hasn't said enough, because he has. And the danger isn't precisely that we are impatient people, because we are. But the danger most of all is that we put those things together and we get tired of waiting. Is it possible that God's people get tired of waiting? Was it possible that the Old Testament people hearing prophet after prophet saying, repent and return to the Lord your God, and prophet after prophet, or holding that entire book of Isaiah in their hands, and seeing all that God had promised about the coming Messiah, And it would be 700 years after Isaiah before that Messiah would show up. Is it possible that God's people get tired of waiting? Was it possible that, well, Abraham got tired of waiting? (laughs) Yeah. You might remember that that plan that wasn't really a plan of um, having a child with Hagar. And they thought they solved the problem and wouldn't have to wait. Was it possible that that God's people throughout history haven't liked to wait? Definitely. Because us having to wait is nothing other than bowing the head and saying, the Lord is God and I am not. Us having to wait is the recognition that it's God's time frame, working through his chosen tools, working according to when he knows is best. And that's not in our control. And that's why we need Advent. Because this heart, and I'm sure yours too, the sinful heart wants to speed things along on our time frame, wants things to happen exactly as we want them, wants all the the bad and the sorrowful to be undone with the flip of a switch, wants everything to be fixed with so little effort from us. But most of all, this human heart wants to tell God to step aside and say, Lord, I'm done waiting. I want it now. And this is how. And to all of that, we have this gospel reading from Luke chapter 19. And as you're reading through it, you recognize this comes pretty late in the book of Luke. It'll be in our Bible reading schedule for next week. This comes pretty late in the book of Luke, so it probably comes fairly late in the ministry of Jesus, and it's like, wow, this, this, sounds, like, this sounds like Palm Sunday, because it is. 
here on the first day of Advent, we see Jesus ride into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday as the reminder that all of the waiting culminates in him and that all of the glory is hidden underneath this man who rides into the shouts of the children and the scorn of the Pharisees. This man who rides in looking for nothing else like God, looking like just a normal human being, like you or me. But there, our waiting has its purpose. And there, our waiting finds its goal. There, we have God himself coming in fulfillment of every single promise that he had said. And there we have God himself being recognized by the believing crowd as the one who had, who had come to his waiting people. You see, because it's one thing to wait and to know and to think that it will, there will never be an end to the waiting. It's one thing to, to deal with pain or suffering and to know that or to think that it will never come to an end. But it's another thing entirely to know that the waiting has a purpose and that the waiting has an end goal. That the purpose along the way of God making us wait is so that we aren't distracted by our own thoughts about timing or how God should run the world. And that we aren't distracted by the regrets that we carry or the sinful thoughts that think we would do a better job. No, God makes us wait to confront us with the truth that he is our God, that he is our good and gracious Lord, and that we can trust that word even and especially when our hearts contradict that idea. We can trust that word because Jesus comes humbly on a donkey as the result of all that waiting, as the, the end goal and purpose of all that waiting. And he comes recognized by the believing crowd that here, here at the end, the end portion of, or the final portion, I suppose, of God's plan of salvation for people, here he gives his son so that you and I would know your waiting has a purpose and your waiting has an end, that your waiting has a goal. And it's a goal that applies to your life now. And it has an end that will happen when this Jesus returns. Because he rode into Jerusalem humbly on that donkey, being able to be rejected by the wisest and smart Alex of the people and received by the believing children, he rode into Jerusalem in order to lay down his life on the cross. And that just as in a few weeks we'll celebrate Jesus being placed in a manger, a few days after this reading, he was placed on a cross and then laid into a tomb as the hope, as the hope of all God's waiting people. And he did not disappoint. In his resurrection, our waiting found its goal and its fulfillment. In his resurrection, your sin was forgiven. 
And even so, even today, it's as though Jesus rides into, not Jerusalem again, but rides and comes into the middle of his people in that preaching of the word as we stand for the reading of the gospel, as we stand as though in the presence of royalty of God himself, as we come humbly before his table, recognizing that this Jesus still comes humbly to his waiting people with the simple promise that your sin is forgiven, that your waiting has a purpose, and that your waiting will have an end. And you put those three things together, that your waiting, that your sin is forgiven, tangibly. That God could have, could have chosen to just put like um, a great giant billboard in the sky to say, dear friend, your sin is forgiven. But instead, he chose to use words on a page, and words that strike the ear. God could have just said it with angels, but instead, he chose to use some of the most common things on earth, like water and bread and fermented grapes. <laughs> so that you can know from that, that physical touch and that tangible taste that your Jesus comes to you, not just as the recollection of events from Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, but this Jesus comes to his waiting people again, each one individually, personally and tangibly for the forgiveness of sins, so that your waiting has a purpose. That yes, we're still waiting for the return of Jesus as we talked about for like the last four weeks and we'll talk about for three more. <laughs> We're still waiting for the return of Jesus, but the purpose, the purpose in our waiting is twofold. One is the, the growth in faith and godly living as we hear and study the word of God together and as we apply that word of God to our hearts in patience, but also to share that word of God, to invite others who perhaps have experienced pain or sorrow or regret, who perhaps have um, grown impatient with their waiting and fallen away from waiting together with God's people, who perhaps are even offended by what they see with their eyes, and they miss the fact that our king still comes exactly the way that he did to Jerusalem that day. He comes in humility, in a way that even the wise and learned might reject. But the children among us, and Lord, give us each a child's faith. The children among us recognize that our Jesus still comes to us. And there's an end to this waiting. Exactly as every other point in salvation history came to its end, that the waiting of Adam and Eve culminated in the coming of the Messiah. The waiting of Abraham and Sarah. 25 years later, Isaac was born. And 2,000 years later, Jesus was born. And the only thing that we are waiting for still is for this Jesus to make his entrance visibly into creation again. Not hidden in humility underneath words and sacraments, but coming in glory and power. And the in-between time is where we live as God's Advent people, as God's waiting people waiting for his 
return, encouraging one another, making use of the Word of God, and even on the way out of church today, maybe making use of that postcard to invite somebody else to come and wait with you. Maybe Palm Sunday sounds a little strange for the first Sunday in Advent when Christmas is just over four weeks away. But it's really God's promise that this Jesus still comes, humbly and not riding on a donkey, but hidden underneath his chosen tools. But more so, even greater, that this Jesus means that our waiting has a purpose, has a goal, and has the reality of the forgiveness of sins in his blood. Amen. Amen.